Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 6th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This past week, we um, we installed and configured a new forum at Christiania. The old software is being replaced. The old forum will remain read-only until we decide that it's time to delete it, depending on the visitor traffic it gets. It's read-only, and nobody can post to it. The new forum is at boards.christagenia.org. It is now linked at the top of the Christagenia website where the old forum used to be linked. And this software being much more practical to a community such as ours, I believe, I'm considering opening, opening up registration probably in four to six weeks. I want to give the moderators and administrators and longtime forum members a chance to become accustomed to the software before they are barraged with new members. And I'm sure the trolls will be right behind them, so... They'll have to learn to deal with that. They'll have to have time to learn how to use the software before they do. So that's our plan anyway. And that's the biggest news at Christagenia this week. The um, second biggest news is we finally got off of the AT&T block list for all of the AT&T networks that we've been on for three years. And that took some doing, but we did it. So that's... That was a challenge, and I didn't think we'd ever resolve it, but it's resolved. We have a new Saxon Messenger out. It's on the front page of the website. It's um, actually a timely issue, I believe, in light of the topics of our programs both last weekend and this evening. The editorial for this Saxon Messenger is an article I had actually written a couple of months ago, and posted it in the Christagenia forum entitled Universalism by the Back Door, which is a fair assessment of what many so-called identity Christians actually profess, and professing that, they're not really identity Christians at all. They're sort of wishy-washy kinists, more or less. Nope, not much different. Not much different than nationalistic Calvinism, which is just um, a horrible, horrible heresy. And, of course, we're reprinting, or, or we're printing the new version of Scatterers and Gatherers, with a few other articles pertinent to our cause. So that's ready. It's on the website. It's already had a few hundred downloads. I pray that as many people in... Christian identity, download it, and share it with as many of their friends as possible. It's ideal for Kindles and things like that. It's just a PDF file. Tonight's program is subtitled that this is part 16 of our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews. It's subtitled, The Sins of Esau, No Birthrights for Bastards. Finishing his description of the faith of the Old Testament saints, 
Paul of Tarsus had referred to them as a great cloud of witnesses lying around us, a reference to either the well-known past history of his Hebrew readers, or perhaps allegorically to the parchments upon which the accounts were written, lying around him as he wrote his epistle. In any event, Paul's explanations were meant to describe how these Old Testament saints had acted upon their faith and were therefore accredited for their actions. Christians, even identity Christians, sometimes see faith as some mystical substance which can rather magically save them regardless of what they may do in this world. For those sorts of Christians, faith is never materialized in this world, so they really feel that they don't have to act or live by what they believe. They have it all wrong. While none of us are perfect, we must at least endeavor to keep the commandments of God and the expectations which Christ has of us, which are expressed in the gospel, if we expect the favor of our God. We can go back to our description of the Roman jailer in Acts chapter 16 which we had also discussed when we presented Hebrews chapter 4 here a couple of months ago. And there we said in part that as it is described in the book of Acts, once the warden of the jail where Paul and Silas were kept realized the power of Yahweh, the God of Paul and Silas, when the earthquake had opened the doors of his jail, he went to Paul and inquired of him what it was that he must do to be saved. The jailer, who was about to slay himself, fearing what would happen if any of the prisoners escaped, was a Roman pagan. Therefore, he had no consciousness of the possibility of eternal life in Jesus. He only sought earthly salvation from the punishment which he expected, for which he nearly killed himself. But when he was about to do so, Paul intervened, and we read, and we'll only read a small portion from Acts Chapter 16, verses 28 through 31. But with a great voice, Paul cried out, saying, Do nothing evil to yourself, for we are all here. And requesting a light, he burst in, meaning the jailer burst in, and coming trembling, fell before Paul and Silas. He was afraid all his prisoners had escaped. And leading them outside, he said, Masters, what is necessary for me to do that I be saved? And they said, Believe in the prince, Yahshua, and you and your house shall be saved. When a jailer in Philippi was afraid that his prisoners escaped, Paul assured him that they were all present. The jailer must have been relieved, but feared his position in the Roman authorities above him, so because of the circumstances. Deciding that he should trust Paul, he asked, What is necessary for me to do that I be saved? When the, jailer, when the jailer asked this, he had no concept of Jesus, and he was ignorant of Christian concepts of salvation being a pagan. He just didn't want to lose his earthly hide. Paul's perspective was different. Paul was confident the prisoners were not going to escape so the jailer would not be punished and he was indeed focused on the greater prospect of salvation in Christ. So Paul assured him that accepting the faith in Christ, he and his whole house would be preserved. His whole house didn't 
profess Jesus, but they would be preserved because keeping the commandments of Christ and loving one's brother are the way to life in this world. Therefore, speaking of the jailer of Acts chapter 16, we concluded that the jailer being the head of his house, if he chose to keep the commandments of Christ, then the household would follow by necessity. They didn't have to profess Jesus. They only had to keep the law. Turning to Christ, the jailer and his household would ostensibly keep the commandments of Christ. And that is the way to preservation in this life by which the children of Israel can hope to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Doing what Christ has commanded, Christians hope to be preserved in this world and not only in the world which is to come. The jailer understood Paul's words in practical terms and not within the artificial paradigm which has been constructed by the denominational churches. Once again, we can cite Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 where he said, Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race crooked and perverted among whom you appear as luminaries in the society, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ. The Old Testament saints must have been godly people who conducted their lives in a godly manner, or they would never have been accredited, and they would not have made Paul's list of noble examples. But that does not mean that they were perfect men and women, as all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yet throughout their lives, each of them acted with the assurance that there was indeed a God to whom they were ultimately responsible and whom they actively sought. And that is Paul's main point in Hebrews chapter 11. With this, even Samson was able to overcome his enemies, although the result of his sin was his own death along with them. Samson had a vow of religious separation which he did not keep, and that is ultimately what killed him in the end. Christians acting on faith must examine what Christ requires of those in the faith. He commands Christians to keep his commandments and to proactively love their brethren. Therefore, only doing those things can one be found walking the path to being accredited as these ancients were. And with that, one also hopes to escape punishment for his sins in this world and beyond. Yahweh God is merciful. With that, Paul also spoke of the struggle against wrongdoing and the resulting discipline or chastisement for sin. And he said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For whom Yahweh loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You endure discipline as sons Yahweh engages with you. For what is a son whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Here it is apparent that while sons are disciplined, bastards do not suffer such chastisement. But to many readers, this seems like a contradiction. Since it is also apparent 
that both sons and bastards alike may indeed suffer in the trials of this world. But the truth is that only the children of God are being prepared for the kingdom of heaven and all of the others do not matter except that they are the reason why the sons are punished in the first place. And it is also they through whom that punishment is executed, at least to a great degree. There are many examples of this in Scripture, but perhaps it is best summarized in Joel chapters 1 and 2. In Joel chapter 1, the word of Yahweh said, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Has this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children tell another generation. That which the pommel worm has left has the locust eaten, and that which the locust has left has the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm has left has the caterpillar eaten. But the insects are not actual insects. Rather, they are pejorative terms for people, those who devoured ancient Israel, and those who would devour Israel in these last days, of which Joel is also a prophecy. Then we see the remedy mentioned in Joel chapter 2, where after a determined degree of punishment, then will Yahweh be jealous for his land and pity his people. And therefore he assures them, and I will restore to you the years that the locust had eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the pommel worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of Yahweh your God, that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed, and you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am Yahweh your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Obadiah warns of this same punishment and recovery of which Joe warns, but in different terms. Where he wrote in Obadiah 15 and 16, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, or all the nations. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, those caterpillars, locusts, cankerworms and pommel worms devouring the goods of the children of Israel. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. When Yahweh, when Yahweh removes the great army that he sent among the children of Israel for their chastisement, and they're not real locusts and real caterpillars and real canker worms and real pommel worms. In reality, they're niggers and spicks and chinks and Arabs. Yahweh's holy mountain being the children of Israel themselves. All the heathen in Obadiah are the same as the locusts, canker worms, pommel worms, and caterpillars of Joel. They shall be as though they had not been. Obadiah wrote when Jerusalem was already destroyed. So this has not been fulfilled since it was written.
However, seeing that the world has arrived at the circumstances described by the prophet, we await its fulfillment today. So just as the bastard races were employed throughout the Old Testament as a scourge against the children of Israel, whenever they had sinned, and just as it is described in the prophets, the bastard races remain the vehicle by which Yahweh punishes the children of Israel to this very day. But where we see in the revelation that these bastard races <coughs> are the flood from the mouth of the serpent, and the nations which Satan gathers for battle against the camp of the saints, we see that they are associated with Satan and not with God. Therefore, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, only the sheep are preserved and only the goats are destined for the same destruction which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. They may at times suffer in this world along with the children of Yahweh, but their suffering is not for their correction. The Apostle Peter speaks of the trials of this life and the outcome of this present age, where he writes in chapter 1 of his first epistle, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So he says in chapter 3 of his second epistle, that whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This is the same fire prepared for the devil and his angels in the parable of the sheep and the goats, and the fire which all of the bad fish are thrown into in the parable of the net, and the fire which the tares are thrown into at the gathering of the wheat and the tares. Ungodly men are not sinful Israelites. Sinful Israelites are the sons whom Yahweh seeks to correct and promises to have mercy upon. The ungodly men are all of those of the bastard races, the goat nations, the bad fish kind, the tares planted by the devil, which are among every plant which my heavenly Father had not planted. So we read in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 3, that a man, meaning a man of Israel, building upon the foundation in Christ, gold, silver, and precious jewels, can expect a reward in heaven. But a man building upon that foundation wood, hay, and stubble has no reward. It all burns up. Although, as Paul explains, he himself shall be saved. All of the children of Israel are saved because they all have the Adamic spirit, which cannot be destroyed in the trials of this world. But no bastard can be saved because they are all ungodly in the first place. They are broken cisterns which do not have the spirit which Yahweh imparted to the Adamic race. So when they are burned in the fire, allegorically speaking, there is nothing left to be saved. Clouds without water, twice dead, trees pulled up by the roots. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, Paul continues speaking in a reference to the sons, 
not to the bastards. Accordingly, we have had as disciplinarians our fathers of the flesh, and we respect them. Shall we not be much more subject to the father of spirits, and we shall live? Being subject to the father of spirits necessitates the subjection of oneself to the law of God. For example, upon commending the Christians at Rome in chapter 16 of his epistle to the Romans, Paul wrote, Surely that of your compliance has reached to all. Therefore I rejoice concerning you. Because, as he had also taught them in that epistle, an acceptance of the gospel meant a departure from sin, which is a keeping of the commandments of Christ. And even when the body can't do it, we acknowledge that the law, which is spiritual, is good. And we repent. Paul wrote likewise in Galatians chapter 5, where he said from verse 18, but if ye be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, or pharmakia, which is sorcery, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because the people in the kingdom of God simply won't be doing such things. These things simply won't be done. So the Christian challenge is to put them away now in this life. The modern perverts found in the denominational churches claim to be spiritual and use that as an excuse to engage in all sorts of wicked behavior. Christians should never accept such sodomites and cretins because being spiritual demands that one keeps the commandments of Christ, which are the laws of Yahweh, the Old Testament God, the God that those modern perverts think is mean. Entering the kingdom of God, men will have no choice but to depart from sin. Paul continues to speak of discipline. Indeed, they, referring to earthly fires, er, earthly fathers, for a few days, relatively speaking, had disciplined in accordance with that which is determined by them. But he, Yahweh, for a benefit for which to have a share in his Holiness, and that's an important passage. The fathers of the flesh are natural fathers, who would have disciplined sons as they grew through manhood. To these Paul compares discipline from God, which is for a much greater purpose. But this punishment of which Paul speaks is the same punishment prophesied for Israel in the Old Testament. If the children of Israel had maintained their holiness which is the distinct separation from the other races, which Yahweh had required of them, there would have been no punishment. In this regard, we read in Exodus chapter 19, when the covenant is first made with Israel and the law is given, 
Now, therefore, if this is the conditional covenant, the promises to Abraham, which were passed down to Isaac and Jacob, are unconditional. But the maintenance of the kingdom, which was instituted in Exodus chapter 19, is conditional. And when they broke the conditions, they were scattered as a people. They were no longer a kingdom. That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Then in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see a corroboration of this, where it says, For thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance, as thou spakest by the hand of Moses thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Yahweh God. These commandments still stand, as Peter reveals in his first epistle, and as Paul reveals here and in many other places in his writings, that ultimately the children of Israel will be a separate and distinct people. And they won't have a choice because all the bastards will be in a lake of fire. God will prevail. The fact that the children of Israel failed to keep these commandments to be separate are the reasons for the corruption and dissolution of the Old Testament kingdom. This is very clear in Numbers chapter 33, where the word of Yahweh says from verse 55, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass, because they didn't drive these people out, but they let these people hang around to corrupt the nation. Moreover, it shall come to pass, that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. Ultimately, this is why we have Jews, Arabs, and the other bastard races amongst us today, because we didn't remove them back then. In Leviticus chapter 26, the word of Yahweh spoke of the punishments to come upon the children of Israel for their sins. And it says, And if you will not be reformed by me by these things, but will walk contrary unto me, then will I also walk contrary unto you, and I will punish you yet seven times, seven prophetic times, for your sins. So when these punishments were finally executed, as Yahweh says to Israel in Amos chapter 3, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Amos chapter 3 is the result of Israel not doing what they were supposed to do, so Yahweh said he would do, did what he said he would do in Leviticus 26. It's that simple. The Bible's one book telling one story. This was the punishment that had been promised in Leviticus, and it was repeated again over a hundred years after Amos, in Jeremiah chapter 30, where Yahweh said, Though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered thee, 
Yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. This is why the children of Israel require salvation, as Yahweh said in the preceding words. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, the words preceding that passage which we just read in Jeremiah chapter 30. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh. Neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Throughout his epistles, Paul had written about tribulation and distress coming upon the world. Inevitably, he understood that it was due to the very fact that the children of Israel were to be punished for this predetermined period of time. Encouragingly, speaking of punishment for sin as opposed to life in the Spirit, he wrote in reference to God in Romans chapter 8, that that same Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh, and if children, then heirs heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. Therefore I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value, looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. So continuing to speak of this punishment, Paul says here in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11, now any discipline for the present seems not to be of joy but of grief, though later returns peaceable fruit of righteousness to those having been trained by it. And in that same chapter of Romans where Paul wrote of the happenstances of the present time not having any value compared to the future honor to be revealed to us, the same phenomenon that Paul is discussing here, Paul continued by saying in Romans chapter 8 verse 19, Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness the creation was subjected, not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation, that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. Back in the Genesis creation, only the Adamic man was promised eternal life, or was promised that he wouldn't die. And when Paul says creation here, as we shall see, he only means to refer to the Adamic creation, which is the only creation which Yahweh promised wouldn't die if they obeyed him. And Paul says... For we know that the whole creation laments together and travails together in until then. Now later in verses 38 and 39 of Romans chapter 8, it is revealed that by saying the whole creation, Paul means to refer to all of the children of Adam, whom he considers as a distinct creation in relation to other creations, such as angels, heights, deaths, power, principalities, etc. And when Paul lists these terms, he says, or any other 
creation. So he sees all of these things as distinct creations. Now, something else is evident here. Because in that passage, Paul said nothing about other races of so-called people. Ostensibly, because of all so-called people, Yahweh only created the Adamic race. So he didn't compare the Adamic creation to niggers or Chinamen. For the same thing, Paul had told the Corinthian Christians to be separate from all other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he said, Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. For what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faith, the faithful with the faithless? And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh had said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince. And do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you, and I will be to you for a father. And you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the almighty prince, or lord, if you will. There's something else to be noticed here. If the Corinthian Christians are descendants of the children of Israel, as they were, being Dorian Greeks, being reconciled to Yahweh their God in Christ, there's only two groups here. And everybody else has to be counted in the categories of untrustworthy aliens, lawlessness, darkness, belial, faithless, idols, and are the them who the Corinthian Christians are commanded to come out from amongst. For the same thing, Paul had told the Galatians that the law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. But for the same thing we read in the wisdom of Solomon, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all, meaning all of Adam, shall be made alive. Those who doubt that all Israel shall be saved seem not to understand this larger picture. But the purpose of Yahweh has not changed since the foundation of the world. Next, Paul speaks to encourage the Hebrews to that same obedience to Christ, for which he encouraged the Romans, the Corinthians, and the Galatians, and others. And he says, on which account you straighten up those dropping hands and flagging knees, and you make straight courses with your feet, that the lame not be turned aside, but rather would be healed. Excuse me. This calls to mind the to our mind the words of John the Baptist recorded in Luke chapter 3 prepare ye the way of the Lord make his path straight every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth Christianity isn't hard it's not difficult it's very easy it's some very simple concepts 
Speaking allegorically, Paul informs us here that once a man walks a straight course, he may also help his less fortunate brother walk that same straight course. Otherwise, perverting the way of truth, a man causes his weaker brother to also wander out of the way. So he says in verse 14, Pursue peace with all, and sanctification, without which no one should see the prince. Paul had similarly advised the Galatians in chapter 6 of that epistle where he said, So then while we have occasion we should work it good towards all, but especially towards those of the family of the faith. Bear in mind that Paul was not speaking in a world filled with Mexicans, Negroes, and Chinamen. We had Adamic people and we had Christian Israel and Israelites turning to Christ. We had Israelites who remained pagan for many generations and we had Canaanites and Edomites who were very difficult to tell apart. So likewise in Colossians chapter 4 Paul wrote, in reference to those outside you walk in wisdom buying the time your speech always with good will seasoned with salt it is necessary for you to know in what manner to answer every single one and in this manner Joshua Christ had also advised his apostles as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 10 behold I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves but Paul warns us here that without sanctification nobody shall see the prince. Whether he be referring to the presence of Christ in heaven or the return of Christ to earth, that sanctification demands the children of Israel reconciled to Christ in the gospel to be a holy and separate people. So Paul distinguishes the family of the faith in Galatians chapter 6, made a reference to those outside in Colossians chapter 4, and told the Corinthians to come out from among them and touch not the unclean in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Peter wrote to scattered Israelites turning to Christ, and in his first epistle, and citing the books of both Exodus and Hosea, he said to them, But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, the same language we see in Exodus. And Peter's applying it to Christians, because they are Israelites being reconciled to Christ. And he proves that here by citing Hosea so that you should proclaim the virtues from which, from out of darkness, which is an, an allusion to the darkness of the children of Israel in captivity described in Isaiah, from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of Yahweh, those who had not then shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. The reference to Hosea, words that only apply to the children of Israel. The punishment of Israel by God is followed by a promise of mercy, and that is the discipline of which Paul speaks here. Upon returning to Christ, now he exhorts them not to make the same mistakes that their ancestors had made. And he says, watching closely, that not any 
are lacking from the favor of Yahweh, lest any root of bitterness springing up would trouble you, and by it many would be defiled. Nor some fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one meal sold his own birthright. Now the ancient manuscripts are very consistent in the wording of this passage, except at the very end where Papyri 46 has sold the birthright rather than sold his own birthright. All the other manuscripts agree without reading. This is a very important passage. One of the most important passages in all of Paul's epistles because it reveals Paul's entire worldview concerning race and scripture. Of course, there are many other passages in Paul's writing which do the same thing, but none so profoundly as this one. This passage also both explains and is corroborated by Paul's statements concerning Israel, his kinsmen in Israel, his kinsmen according to the flesh, Jacob and Esau, found in Romans chapter 9. Examining this statement, the only valid conclusion is this. There can be no birthrights for bastards. None. The scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 23, that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to his tenth generation, he shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, or Yahweh where there is a similar command concerning Moabites and Ammonites in that chapter, the saying, even to his tenth generation, is explained, where it is followed with the phrase, they shall not enter forever. If, after nine generations, a bastard is still a bastard, then we must start counting from one, over and over again, with the birth of each generation a bastard. And the counting never ceases, so a bastard can never enter the congregation of Yahweh. The fools who claim that after nine generations a bastard is acceptable, in essence advocate the destruction of nine generations in Israel in order to try to get something good out of a bastard. These people who advocate these things can only be devils themselves. And a lot of clowns listen to the chubby little rabbi in Chicago pretending to be a Christian identity pastor who teaches this very thing. He would destroy nine generations of Israelite women to get something good out of a nigger. And it's just not possible to do. But he'd destroy the entire race trying. He is a devil. And as a digression, you know, we may not be able to tell all the bastards apart, and if we tried on our own, we might mistakenly and unrighteously condemn a brother. But we should consent to the ideal and love the law of God. Those who refuse that law, they prove themselves to be bastards. And we reject them. A root of bitterness is a spirit of rebellion. If you check the Strong's Concordance under the word Mara, Naomi in the book of Ruth said, I am bitter. Call me Mara. I am bitter. B 
because Mara means bitter. But the word was also used in the ancient Hebrew as, a, as an allegory for rebellion, to be bitter against God. You're being rebellious against God. So the allegorical use of the term for bitter is rebellion. And that shows up in Paul's Greek in this very epistle to the Hebrews. I believe we discussed it in weeks past. A root of bitterness is a spirit of rebellion causing disobedience, which in turn leads to sin. The phrase is a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, as it is found in the Septuagint. There it is speaking in reference to the aliens which were put to flight before the children of Israel, which Paul had also mentioned here in chapter 11 of this epistle. And Moses is making a covenant or agreement with the people of Israel and exhorting them not to join themselves to the Canaanites. So we read from Deuteronomy chapter 29, from verse 7 we'll start. And when ye came unto this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us unto battle, and we smote them, and we took their land, and gave it for an inheritance unto the Reubenites, and to the Gadites, and to half the tribe of Manasseh. Keep therefore the words of this covenant, and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Ye stand this day, all of you, before Yahweh your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the stranger that is in thy camp. And that word is gare, a guest, a person who's a guest who has an entitlement of hospitality. From the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with Yahweh thy God. No, they hadn't yet made the bad deal with the Gibeonites at this point, right? And into his oath, which Yahweh thy God makes with thee this day, that he may establish thee to today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he has said unto thee, and as he has sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that stands here with us today before Yahweh our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. For you know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which ye passed by. And ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turns away this day from Yahweh our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood, the root of bitterness, which Paul mentions here. And it shall come to pass, when he hears the words of his curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. Don't accept the aliens, or the aliens will believe they have peace. 
walking in, imagine, in the imagination of their own heart to add drunkenness to their thirst. Yahweh will not spare him, but then the anger of Yahweh and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and Yahweh shall blot out his name from under heaven. Moses is speaking about men who accept the aliens and the gods of the heathen. You're adding drunkenness to thirst. You're walking in the imagination of your own heart, and you're going to be punished for it. So where Paul is about to speak of the sin of Esau, he chooses to cite a verse where Moses exhorts the children of Israel not to serve the gods of the heathen. Joining themselves to the alien people, they certainly would be serving the alien gods. They will be punished for it. And that is exactly what Esau had done. So Paul refers to him as a fornicator or profane person. And apparently Esau was both of those things or Paul could not have used that language. The sin of Esau was race mixing. Many of the Judaized commentators of the denominational churches purport that Esau was merely worldly or was a warrior who relied on his own strength instead of relying on God. And while those things are true, they alone do not make Esau a profane person and a fornicator. Samson was also a brave warrior. Samson also married a woman of another tribe, Delilah of the Philistines. But Samson was praised by Paul for his faith, rather than being denigrated as a profane man and a fornicator. Delilah was a white woman of the Philistines. Samson couldn't be a fornicator if he married a white woman. Samson was such a great warrior that he killed a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. Today's denominational so-called pastors, leading the sheep to the fornication of race mixing, they themselves are asses who kill countless thousands with their own jawbones. Paul called Esau a fornicator or profane person, except for some insignificant variations in the phrase where it says that he sold his own birthright. All of the ancient manuscripts are consistent in their readings of this passage. The word profane is from the Greek word babelos, which is allowable to be trodden permitted to human use, of persons unhallowed or impure. And thus Esau was, because of his fornication, for Esau took wives of the Canaanites and Ishmaelites, who had ostensibly been mingled with the non-Adamic races. The Canaanites, it is recorded in Genesis chapter 15, were mingled with the Kenites, the Rephaim, which are the Nephilim, the fallen angels, the giants who came from the bastardization of the fallen angels. And then in Genesis chapter 15, along with the Rephaim and the Kenites, we see several branches of the Canaanites, but we also see certain races such as the Kenizzites and others who have no genealogy with Noah in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. 
So we have no clue where they came from. As for fornication, in verse 7 of his only epistle, Jude defines fornication as the pursuit of different flesh. This is substantiated in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, where he described as fornication the events of Numbers chapter 25, where it says that Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people under the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. Other illicit sexual acts may be considered fornication. And it may be said that idolatry is spiritual fornication. But the part about committing whoredom with the daughters of Moab is physical race-mixing fornication. And that's what Paul was referring to, which is the fornication which Esau also committed when he had taken Hittite wives. Elsewhere, this is also described in Scripture as the error of Balaam, or Balaam. In Revelation chapter 2, we see references to this type of fornication, both in relation to Balaam and the sin of Israel joining themselves to the daughters of Moab, and in relation to Jezebel, who is used as an allegory for fornicators. In this regard, it says in a message to the church at Theatira, from verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not, ostensibly because she couldn't. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So those who commit fornication suffer tribulation until they repent. They're not killed. But the children who result from such fornication are destroyed because a bastard cannot enter the congregation of Yahweh. For his fornication, Esau was destined to lose his birthright. And Jacob knew enough that it should be his own because Esau couldn't have it. So Jacob engineered a way to make Esau forfeit it voluntarily. As we see in Genesis chapter 25, and Jacob sawed pottage, or he cooked a soup. And Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. And therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore to him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
Esau did not despise his birthright because he wanted food. Rather, Esau had no problem using it to purchase the food because he thought so little of it in the first place. By the fact that Esau despised his birthright, he might be considered profane by some stretch of the imagination, but that certainly does not make Esau a fornicator, which is a serious offense for which 23,000 Israelites were slain in one day, as Paul himself had also said of that act of Israel joining, them, joining themselves to the daughters of Moab in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we read at the end of Genesis chapter 26, And Esau was 40 years old when he took the wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. The only thing that Esau did for which he was criticized by his parents in Genesis, and the only thing which he did which may be considered fornication, was to marry these Hittite women. But Isaac, for whatever reason, still intended on giving Esau the blessing of the firstborn which disturbed both Jacob and Rebekah to the degree that Rebekah schemed for Jacob to get the blessing instead, and he did. Jacob did no wrong and wanted nothing to do with the scheme, protesting that he would be called a deceiver, and his mother relieved him of guilt, taking it all upon herself, as we read in Genesis chapter 27, where at first Jacob is speaking and says, My father peradventure will feel me, and I shall seem to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me, and not a blessing. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice. Taking advantage of his father's blindness, Jacob received the blessing of the firstborn, and after the deed was done and discovered, Isaac knew not to take it back. Rebekah then justifies her actions to her husband, and we read at the close of that same chapter. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, the Hittites, that Esau had married. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? Isaac must have agreed, and we read at the opening of Genesis chapter 28, And Isaac called Jacob, and blessed him, and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram to the house of Bethuel, thy, father, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. Many commentators miss this aspect of the natures of Jacob and Esau that Jacob obeyed his parents 
and acted according to their desires. While Esau acted according to his own desires, not caring for his birthright, but only for his immediate fleshly needs. So Jacob inherited the blessing upon the provision that he took a wife of his own people, and he did. Jacob was later renamed Israel, because he will rule with God. But Esau was renamed Edom. And the difference between the word Edom and the word Adam is only an artificial difference made by translators. Jacob represents the spiritual man who will overcome the flesh and rule with God. Esau represents the fleshly nature of man which has no regard for the spirit but only to fulfill its own fleshly desires. Paul contrasts these two natures of the Adamic man in Romans chapter 7 and elsewhere in his epistles. If you aspire to follow Jacob, you obey your ancestors and you'll rule with God. If you follow the fleshly needs of the, of the body, the carnal mind of the Adamic man, rather than the spiritual mind, then you'll end up with Esau. Esau, not overcoming the impulses of the flesh, married women outside of his race, women which were forbidden by his parents. And for that, he was a profane man and a fornicator. Paul, using such language in reference to Esau, in this epistle to the Hebrews, is admonishing these Hebrews not to do such things. Therefore, we see that the injunctions of the law against race mixing are still in full force and effect in the Christian gospel. Or Paul would have never even raised these issues. So Paul continues, For you know that even afterwards, desiring to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he did not find a place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears. Writing this, Paul is referring to the events recorded a little further on in Genesis chapter 28, where it says that when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, and sent him away to Padanaram, to take him a wife from thence, and that as he blessed him, he gave him charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob obeyed his father and mother, and was gone to Padanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael, he just couldn't get it right, and took unto the wives which he had, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife. Nebaioth being the progenitor of the Nabataean Arabs. If we examine the Old Testament scriptures, the Nabataean Arabs had mixed in with the Edomites to a great degree later on in history. They're basically all Arabs and they're all bastards. So Esau realized his sin, but still could not do quite right. He had attempted to rectify the problem, not by consulting with his parents, 
but by doing what was right in his own eyes and taking a daughter of Ishmael to wife. However, Abraham was already told by Sarah to cast down this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And with this Yahweh agreed, telling Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, Hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Hagar therefore being rejected, Esau could not find repentance taking a wife of the children of Ishmael. Many commentators imagine this plain interpretation of scripture is somehow undone in Deuteronomy 23.7, where the King James Version says, Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. However, it can be demonstrated that in many places the Hebrew letters for D, the Daleth, and are the resh very very similar to one another almost indiscernible in script were confused by the hebrew scribes even throughout genesis and of course the later jewish scribes and once that is recognized it is seen that deuteronomy 23 7 may well have been read thou shalt not abhor an aramean not an edomite an aromi not and Edomi, for he is thy brother. The words are one letter apart in Hebrew, and it is noted by Strong in his concordance, as well as by others, that these two words were confused elsewhere. Laban, the brother of Rebekah, was even called Laban the Syrian, Syrian being the word which the King James translators used wherever the Hebrew refers to an Aramean. So it should say, Thou shalt not abhor a Syrian, for he is thy brother. The people of Arphaxad and the people of Aram, both sons of Shem, were so close that Abraham's own homeland was called Padanaram, or the plain of Aram. Later in scripture, in the time of David, the Israelites dwelt throughout the land of Aram from Damascus to Hamath. And later in history, Herodotus referred to the people of Judah as the Syrians of Palestine. They became indistinguishable, but the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, maintained a distinct identity until shortly before the time of Christ, when the, under the Romans they generally became known as Judeans. As the word of Yahweh speaks in Malachi, Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 and says, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Therefore we must accept our correction of Deuteronomy 23.7, because Yahweh God cannot be made to contradict himself by the interpretations of man. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is alluding to the fact that the population of Judea at his time consisted of both Israelites and Edomites, something which is corroborated in the histories of Josephus in great detail, which is also evident in the books of the Maccabees, and is mentioned by Strabo of Cappadocia in his Geography, Book 16. This was also prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 35, that Mount Seir, the home of Esau, would become desolate and the Edomites would move into the vacant lands of Israel and Judah. 
So Paul says in that chapter that not all of the people in Israel are actually of Israel. He professes that he is only concerned for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he goes on to contrast Jacob and Esau. Doing this, he talks about two vessels being made from one lump, one for mercy, which is Jacob, and one for dishonor, which is Esau. He then describes vessels of destruction, referring to the Edomites, and vessels of mercy, referring to the Israelites remaining in Judea. Those same Israelites are these Hebrews whom Paul is writing to here. So this particular passage where Paul sets out Esau as a fornicator also serves to further illustrate the reasons for what Paul had taught in Romans chapter 9. Giving our commentary on the Acts of the Apostles here several years ago, we established that the epistle to the Romans was written only a short time before this epistle to the Hebrews. Here we are compelled to explain why Esau was not forgiven. But Judah was forgiven, even though he also had a wife who was a Canaanite woman. He also had three sons by the Canaanite, who could not have the inheritance even though one tribe came of them, which was attached to Judah for a long time. The proof that the sons of the Canaanite woman could not have the inheritance is found in the fact that at the time of the birth of Pharez and Zarah, the sons of Judah by Tamar, the order of their birth was significant and it was marked by the midwife. Later, the sons of Pharez ultimately inherited the scepter belonging to Judah, even though Pharez was younger than the children of the Canaanite. First, it must be said that Yahweh took advantage of Judah's incontinence in order to express his mercy upon Judah. If Judah did not consort to a prostitute, or maybe I should have written resort to a prostitute, which in at least one case was his own daughter-in-law, disguised as a prostitute, Pharaoh and Zarah would not have been born and Judah would have had no legitimate heir. And there would have been no tribe of Judah. Ostensibly, however, Yahweh had mercy on Judah and arranged for this because of the promises which Yahweh had made to Jacob. And he executed this mercy through Judah's incontinence in spite of Judah himself using his incontinence to assure that there were indeed 12 tribes in Israel. So Judah received mercy on the account of the promises which Yahweh had made to Jacob. For the same reason Solomon later obtained mercy on account of the promises Yahweh had made to David. Not because Solomon got off the hook for all of his fornication but because Yahweh had to keep the promises he made to David. But Judah was nevertheless made an example later in Scripture for having married a Canaanite. And in it we shall also see that this explains some of the reason for the later division in Judah at the time of Christ. Where we read in Malachi chapter 2, Malachi is a prophet of the return, the people the 40-something thousand people who returned to Jerusalem. 
So this has a direct impact on the time of Christ. We read in Malachi chapter 2 an admonishment against the priests. And the word of Yahweh says, If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith Yahweh of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yeah, I have cursed them already, because ye do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. Now, now Malachi was a prophet of the second temple period, but it's difficult to pin down exactly when, except to say that he was not, like Zechariah, a prophet of the time of Zerubbabel. He was a prophet sometime after Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah. It's only difficult to say how long after. So by this time, we see that the priesthood was already becoming corrupt. And they evidently received this warning, as it says in the subsequent verses, because the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. But you, addressing the priests of his time, have departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. So if Malachi is prophesying of priests who were not necessarily of Levi, or who were corrupting the covenant of Levi, that means there must have been race mixing or infiltrators into the priesthood. Then, we read a little further on in that same chapter. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Well, no, that's not true. Not if you're not a white Adamic individual. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Yahweh didn't create bastards. Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah had dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. Something that Yahweh is not taking credit for creating. So with this we see how the priesthood was corrupted. And this passage in Malachi is prophetic of the ministry of Christ as well. Where we see his adversaries, some of whom were priests, had claimed in John chapter 8 that we have one father, even God. But Christ told them that God was not their father. Here it is evident that Yahweh God is not the father of bastards, and he does not take credit for creating them. This also explains why Esau could not recover his inheritance, because bastards cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So for his purposes, for his purposes, Yahweh had mercy on Judah. But he did not have mercy on Esau, 
and Esau had no legitimate offspring by which to have any part in the inheritance of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. For this Paul had written in Romans chapter 9, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul says, So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. In other words, you can't make yourself be accepted by God. Then he says a little further on, Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, meaning Isaac, to make one vessel unto honor, meaning Jacob, and another unto dishonor, meaning Esau. And finally, Paul says, What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make known his power, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, the Edomites, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, meaning the Israelites. Even us, whom he has called, not only of the Judeans, meaning these Hebrews, the true Israelites in Judea, but also of the nations, the scattered Israelites of Paul's other epistles. It is no different today. As Paul's own words prove here, there are no birthrights for bastards, and all bastards are vessels of destruction, just as the offspring of Esau were described by Paul in his own time. We will be here tomorrow night with Arthur Lee, the Protocols of Satan shall resume either next week or the following. I'm not certain yet. I'm sorry. I have a lot of technical work that also has to be done and only so much time. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening and good night.